0: I'm Matt Dixon, and welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. The mission of Purple Patch is to empower and educate every human being to reach their athletic potential. Through the lens of athletic potential, you reach your human potential. The purpose of this podcast is to help time-starved people everywhere integrate sport into life. And welcome to the Purple Patch Podcast. This is, as ever, your host, Matt Dixon. And well, folks, I'm off this week. I'm trouncing around Europe on my bicycle, but we didn't want to leave you high and dry. Instead, we decided to put together a little bit of a best-of series of the initial months of the podcast. Best-of. What is that? Well, we're going to go through, and we're going to skip word of the week, but we're going to get cracking and give you a little bit of the taste of the key highlights that we've done over the initial months. Before we get going, don't forget the Power Tap and Cyclops competition, purplepatchfitness.com forward slash get cracking. All you have to do is register to win some P1, power pedals, a Magnus indoor trainer and even a coaching consultation with me. Head to purplepatchfitness.com forward slash get cracking. It ends on July 8th, so act quick. You've got to get your entry in by then. We're going to do a drawing, and you can get some fabulous prizes. But now, let's skip word of the week. Let's skip the jingle for the first time ever. Let's get on with the best of. So the first comes all the way back to January, episode two, performance in a time staff life. Hear my introduction on achieving performance in a time staff life and the four magic words for a successful training recipe, specificity, consistency, progression and patience. Please enjoy. So as we get cracking today, I want to start with a challenge as we start this journey together and you begin your year of training. I'm not actually going to talk about asking for a change in what needs to happen fundamentally. You still need to train. Your journey still requires massive commitments and there are no shortcuts. So I'm not here to give you a magic pill. As you might say, there is no magic pill, laddie. The challenge is for you to shift your lens and the way that you look at the path to performance. So I want you to take a really courageous leap in the mindset of what it actually takes to be successful for you, without diluting the undeniable need of commitment to work. You reap what you sow, that's a reality, and that will never change. What I'm gonna ask you to do is repave your path to your own brand of excellence. I'm probably gonna challenge some of your long-held beliefs around performance and excellence and what it takes to be successful. I may make you uncomfortable as you start to transition where you should put your focus. And in fact, you might even start to realize some of the areas that you might have been doing things wrong. And that's okay because we want to improve. Ultimately, I wanna help create a framework for you to have ongoing success. So the first step of this is to actually talk about the magic performance words. What are the always present words on a really successful recipe for an athlete? Well, the first is specificity. Your training has to be specific to you, your goals and your events, your availability, and of course your readiness to absorb that training and positively adapt. Layered on top of that, the second word that we would talk about is consistency. You want to find a recipe that you can repeat and repeat without making the sport a monkey on your back. And so that really resonates with the way of thinking of some training done effectively is much better than just a little bit too much training that ends up becoming a drag on the system. We also have to have the third word progression over the weeks over the months, and even, yes, over the years. What you're doing this year wants to lead into the year following. And the final word, the word that many people don't like to hear, patience. Don't expect linear progression on your journey. And just because you don't always see the results, or at least the immediate results of the hard work that you're putting in, it doesn't mean there isn't value there. So the four magic words when we think about performance is specificity, consistently applied, with progression, and you, the athlete, having a whole bunch of patience. All right, next up. This little snippet is from episode three, Sami Inkanen. Sami was our first guest that we had on the show. Who else could it have been? In this episode, we discuss the key elements of training within context of Sami's time starved life and how he achieves performance both in the workplace as well, of course, in sport. Enjoy. But I remember when we started a question that you, you asked for me where we, in fact, it was, this was really the catalyst for how we set up a lot of our training with very busy people now. He said, I, I need to maximize my physical performance within the landscape of my life. And I effectively, after you go through your exercises, which I effectively stole from you, um, how do we do this on a budget of 12 hours a week of training? That's what I have within context. So I don't have 16, I don't have 20, I have 12 hours a week on a regular basis. So through your lens, What were the key elements in you setting up your training, knowing that you had aspirations at Ironman performance, but you had, at least within context of the big landscape of regular training, you had less hours. So what were the key elements for you when you sort of thought about setting up your training? Um
1: well obviously as you mentioned uh you only have so many hours a day and then if you have other uh, responsibilities you, you truly have a limitation uh with the time um perhaps perhaps the biggest revelation for me in terms of training with limited time budget was this mind chain it's a sort of a mind shift which is for most endurance athletes, including myself when I started triathlon, I always had this idea of like, well, if I can just get a little bit more volume and a little bit more training, I'm gonna become gradually better and better. So you need to ramp up the hours. But then I changed my mindset and said, hmm, if you go to gym and you lift weights, you have very, very different mindset. Uh, And the mindset is, okay, I lifted six times whatever amount of weight. And tomorrow, day after tomorrow, when I go into the gym again, Can I lift more weights or more reps? It's very, very visible. Very few people apply that to endurance training. So that's what I I started doing with with your help, which was I only have this amount of hours. How can I make sure that after each workout or at least after each week, um, I can actually see progress and work out as hard as I can, but not too hard so that I can see progress. Uh, And it was super, super helpful for me. And then it was surprising to notice that you actually don't need that many hours and you can see your watts go up on the bike, your running pace increase, your swimming speed increases in in the pool. Um, So that was an important part for me that I focused on the progress and the improvement as opposed to the process metrics purely, which is like how many hours did I train this week?
0: Yeah, which cannot be the barometer of success. What about going... What about your mindset going into races? There's a... I think there's a lot of things for athletes as well to look over the garden fence. So look next door and... um, There was no secret. We knew that you were on this training budget and you could look at yourself and say that I'm improving. But was there any confidence erosion in yourself of your ability to perform relative to peers that you knew were doing 20 hours a week of training?
1: Um... Or did it not affect I you actually, at all? I, I never. In fact, once I noticed that I started performing, it became uh, almost a confidence building thing. And I remember having these conversations with friends and acquaintances at, in Hawaii at the Kona uh, uh, Ironman World Championships where, you know, age group athletes share how they train 20 to 23, 24 hours a week. Just to get in there, and I just remember always laughing to myself like that's nuts. I, you know, I maxed out the twelve hours a week, um, so it became almost like a confidence building thing for me that I knew that I had like a secret <laughs> contrarian approach, and it's working very well. So I never really worried about what was happening uh, or how somebody else was was preparing. To me, race events were less about. Uh, am I the first or the second or the third it was a stepping stone to learn if the work is paying off and then one of the practices I've always used is after every single event I force myself to sit down for at least 15 minutes to write down three things that I can improve it's this kind of a growth mindset and you know if you raise six times a year that's 18 new ideas what you can improve and if you raise five years that's 90 new ideas so like, my path to whatever performance I've achieved, it wasn't 12 months, you know, a 24-month quick jump. It's five, six, seven, eight years of tiny, tiny steps. Uh, but when you do that, you know, say 90 ideas, uh, suddenly it's starting to add up.
0: And and, and even on the, that, the tiny, tiny steps, and we we're part of the dictionary, as we call it, is embrace the journey. And that, you know, it resonates but the tiny steps people become so fixated on the weekly hours but if you actually accumulate in your case your 12 hours for many many months and ultimately you're getting ready for a single day event that's eight to nine hours in duration in your performance level that's a lot of training hours to get ready for a single event and that's sort of bringing it up again where it's like that accumulation that layering of training is the thing and i would say for your empowerment your um you're safe in the knowledge that you're always showing up fit and fresh and, and fitness is seldom the limiter. And um, and I would say many people that are within the context of busy lives trying to ram 24 hours a week of training in have a high potential of showing up fit and fatigue, which, which is very, very hard to ultimately perform on a single day. Um, and I think in that that, I think there's a really key point to understand and a lot was written about your sub nine hour performance in, uh, in Hawaii on that regime, 12 hours a week. And I think that the, the key point that comes out of it is not necessarily that to be your best 12 hours a week of training is optimal. It's what's the appropriate training dose within the context of your life. And so when I always reflect on your journey and I look at you and, and what you achieved it's the key message is you would have failed if you had done 16 hours. At least we can presume that the results wouldn't have been good. And that's a really different thing because I, there was a, some kickback a, a against sort of some of the things that were written about that, that topic to say, you know, they're saying less is more. And, uh, and it's actually, no, the key is finding the appropriate recipe within context of your, your life. All right. To carry on this week's little best of, we move all the way to episode eight here. The sleep doctor, Dr. Chris Winter. What is the influence of good sleep on global performance? What are the benefits and rewards that one can reap from getting good sleep? Find out now. Let, let's talk about the uh, the reward, the outcome, the the benefit. Because you know, we, we establish that sleep is critical. We know what good sleep is, but what is it? What's the influence of positive sleep habits on global performance? And and feel free to go into a little bit of physiology. Just just keep it a little basic for me. But what's the reward system of getting really good sleep?
2: Yeah, I think it's staggering. I mean, the the reason I work with athletes is really nothing to do with athletes. It has more to do with the, it's it's a laboratory. I mean, athlete is somewhat arbitrary. We could have decided, let's Let's work with lawyers or doctors or airplane pilots or whatnot. But you know, the, the nice thing about an athlete, particularly the ones that you work with, mm-hmm. where everything is timed. I've got you know I've been doing these runs and trainings for three years and I keep meticulous records in these logs that I keep or whatnot. I know exactly what my 500 meter swim time is exact. You know the nice thing about that is when you start manipulating variables like sleep, you, you, often get an answer. And so th- that's the reason we wanted to work with athletes because we wanted to figure out if we got people sleeping better, did it really matter? You know? And so the great thing about it is that it does, I mean, in, in numerous studies, not only in terms of athletic performance, but just in physiology in general, it, it, it works. And the problem though is it, it tends to work somewhat slowly and it's a long play, you know, it, it's, it's not a shot of some sort of performance-enhancing drug. It, you know, and a lot of people, particularly the younger athlete, can do quite well ignoring their sleep. So it really starts to become this idea of, yeah, I know you do well. I know you came in first or I know you came in third. And you think that if you just keep doing what you're doing, you'll eventually get to the level you want to. But it can be a lot easier if you take care of your sleep. And so it's easy to convince an athlete that's starting to decline. Now he or she's panicked and saying, "Look, I'm going to pay attention to my sleep because I, I'm, I'm not competing at the level I did a couple of years ago. What we want to do is we want to convince young athletes, new athletes, people new to the sport, that this should be part of your training right from the beginning and not simply when things go bad. So you know if you're looking at things that it directly impacts you know, for an individual who's not getting good sleep that we defined earlier, it can impact the speed at which you do your sport. So a running speed or swimming speed, um, it's been shown to, to improve both. Starting times, reaction times, turn times in a swim, if you're somebody who does pool swims. Mm-hmm. It completely changes decision-making uh, and ability to do things. So when I think about, you know, races – they, they seem, I think, probably to an outsider as being quite static, but there's a million decisions that are being made throughout a race. When to push, when to pull back, how hard to go in a certain aspect of the sleep. Uh, we become very risk adverse uh, when we, uh, I'm sorry, we actually seek more risk than we should when we're uh, ill prepared to sleep. We don't recognize cues from others. We don't recognize our own cues. When we're, when we're when we're poorly slept, um, so you know all these things we tend to be injured uh, more. We tend to recover slower from injuries. Um, it's it's amazing just our, our accuracy with certain things. So if you were a biathlete and you had to suddenly stop skiing and shoot a gun, you know accuracy of things like that becomes much less. Um, Our ability to retain information, to concentrate. You know, I think of a long-distance runner. My biggest hindrance when I've done things like that is myself. I just, I can't bear to be with myself for a three-hour run. You know, which is why I'm so much better running in a new place, like running in New York City, than I am on that same road I run on all the time, just because the mental aspect of it crushes me and that's much harder for an individual who's poorly slept so it's just it's all of those things it's optimism it's faith it's 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 energy enthusiasm stamina all these things suffer when we're not getting enough sleep
0: and 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 then uh, layering on the the most general one of course it's the playground of your physiological adaptations as well so in other words if if you're very athlete centric in your mindset you're applying a training stress and yes. the physiological adaptations of why you're applying, applying that physiological stress to be fitter, stronger, more powerful, et cetera, et cetera, cannot happen without proper sleep as well.
2: That's right. And, and I think, I mean, I, I'm not sure who's making fun of the recovery doc, the recovery coach anymore. I mean, I think recovery is everything when it comes to sports. I mean, and I think that under the umbrella of recovery, sleep neatly fits. I mean, I think it, it's a huge part of that. So, you know, to go out there and do all these things you're describing and really push ourselves and not give ourselves adequate time to recover or adequate time to sleep is, is, is a fool's errand. It's, it's, you know, you're destroying that you're breaking the body down with this idea that it will recover, it will rebuild itself better, even though I'm not giving it a chance to do that.
0: You know what? I love a good natter with other coaches, but I was honored to have Steve Magnus on the show. He joined me in episode 13. Two big takeaways here with Steve. What are the mistakes that athletes make during training? And conversely, what are some of the positive habits they possess? Enjoy. You're a running coach. I, I have a, um, a lens on triathlon, obviously, and sort of overall endurance athletes, but I'd love to know your perspective. When you look at at training runners, performing runners, what are the biggest mistakes that you see being made from athletes?
3: Yeah, I think what it, I think the biggest mistake I I see is the the kind of too much too soon or like um, component or like over emphasizing of one quality. And what I mean by both uh, too much too soon is pretty obvious. It's that they they think like, oh, I need to perform at this level, so we're gonna Jump from you know it, platform A all the way to platform Z, right? Instead of making a nice gradual improvement and like gradually increasing the stress. And I think the other component is like people start thinking that oh like this is the magic workout or you know I need to be able to do a six mile threshold run at this pace in order to run my race and the reality is like all the components matter they just matter to different degrees as we you know at different periods of the year so it's not that 400 meter repeats or mile repeats or a tempo run are magical it's just they offer some sort of different stress to get us there so i think like acknowledging that and understanding that is incredibly important
0: i think it is the too much too soon as well that the giant leap. The other one I would add to that is we we talked about obstacles a little bit. When people for one reason or another fall behind, and a great example is several athletes have had flu recently. We've had a big flu outbreak uh, this year. And I was just talking about this this morning. Catastrophe happens when you try and play catch up too quickly. So even in a block of training, Uh, it's it's a really bad thing to think I'm behind by two weeks I'm going to accelerate coming back from injury how many times do we see repeated injury cycles or performance failure from athletes trying to get from A to B whether it's the huge leap you know I need to get to where I need to get to (laughs) as a performance or it's just coming back from sickness
3: where catastrophe happens so many times Exactly, that's a good point because I think you know I look at training as like we can't force adaptation, right? We I can't force your way into improving in your 5K by 20 seconds, right? It, it's got a ha- It's got to happen on my body's schedule, and that same thing applies, you know. If if you're sick, like I can't say, oh man, we lost those two weeks and now we have to make up for it, and it's like no. We are, we are where we are and like we need to improve upon that but like we can't we can't we don't have a time machine like I can't go back and say okay like here throw all this work at it and like we'll get better it doesn't work like that
0: No exactly well, in, in that lens with the let's go to the positive side and I'm really interested in habits so what are some of the, the great supporting habits that you think help some of your athletes be successful?
3: Mm, That's a good question. You know what, I think in habits, I think the biggest thing is like, we call it like living the runner lifestyle to a degree. And that's not being like obsessive or obsessive compulsive on things, but like, understanding, like, what actually matters, right. Mm -hmm. And then like giving that value. So if if like you're training with a high degree of volume and intensity, then what matters is recovering off of that. So making sure that you're getting the sleep, making sure you're getting the recovery, making sure you're like getting the nutrition, like those things have a higher degree of value now. So what I've seen with athletes who have done really well is they're not like obsessive compulsive on it, but they know what to assign value to, right? They're not worried. They're worried about getting nine hours of sleep or getting in the nap versus like obsessing over should I eat like this recovery protein or this recovery protein. If that makes sense,
0: it's a hundred percent. I'll give you a uh, a saying that that is the heartbeat of sort of mindset and approach at Purple Patch, both in our pro squad and across our landscape of athletes. We always call it nailing the basics, and yeah. so it, it's it's an incredible it. it it's, it's not sexy. You don't sell it. But 95% of success in my mind is getting the very basic stuff right. And then you have the privilege of working on the incremental stuff of refining what, what protein drink you're going to drink or whatever you might, might say. <music> And we followed Steve with who I would call his sidekick, Brad Stolberg, the co-author of Pete Performance with Steve. From episode 17, we have a discussion on the words balance, excellence, and the importance of seeking joy in your training. So let's let's go to the words. So I I have a few words, and I've got a feeling that we're going to go down some rabbit holes, as I mentioned. So I'm just going to name, say one word, and... I'm gonna get you to talk about it, and and I bet that I have some thoughts coming back at you. So uh, we'll try and spend two or three minutes at each word at most, but this might end up being a long podcast if not. So here's the first word, and uh, you you talk about this a lot, both in your writing as well as in the book. Balance,
4: an illusion, and what I mean by that is I think there's so much societal and cultural pressure, at least here in the states to strive for balance. And I think that people hear that and they think that every day you should have just the right amount of time for family, just the right amount of time for work, just the right amount of time for your hobbies, just the right amount of sleep, and each day should be like perfectly balanced. And I think that if you pursue that, two things happen. You either end up having a life where you go through the motions and it's just from one thing to the next, not really pursuing anything passionately or deeply, or you end up completely burning out because you are pursuing things passionately and deeply, but you're trying to do everything at once. So when I think of balance, I don't at all think about having this perfectly structured day, perfectly structured week, perfectly structured life where the various pieces are in equal proportion. I like to zoom out and I think about it much more over the course of a decade or a lifetime. And that can absolutely involve periods of going all in on something. Um, I've written about this. I've thought about this a lot. I actually think the times when people tend to report being happiest and most fulfilled are the times when they are least balanced. It's when you're falling in love, when you're trying to make an Olympic team. Even as an age grouper, you're really going for Kona in sport, or you're a founder of a new company. You're starting Purple Patch as a business, right? These are not balanced times, but they're times when people feel really alive.
0: (laughs) The the phrase I sometimes or, or often say is um, unachievable utopia. That's uh, when people say I'm trying to find more balance. It's like you cannot achieve this utopian state. It's it's not quest. And in fact, excellence, which is uh, which is a word, I'm, I'm going to ask you. I don't want to I don't want to give away too many of the words to you in advance. But excellence is unachievable in a state of this theoretical balance. I think it it balance aligns with mediocrity in many ways. Um, yeah. you, can, I, you, know, you,
4: you mentioned excellence, and, and maybe we hop in there a bit because I think that in a long time ago in a conversation we shared that we both are fond of a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, Yep. and excellence, right, that's a recurring theme through that book, and the author makes exactly that point, that if you want excellence, and excellence isn't just winning a medal or, or placing in your age group or getting promoted at work. Excellence can also be a loving relationship, raising a child. Uh, the more that you care about something, the more excellence you'll get out. But like you said, you can't care deeply about everything because there's just not enough. There, you don't have enough energy. There aren't enough hours in the day.
0: It, it, exactly, and I and it, absolutely agree. I want to come back to balance for a moment because one of the things you said I think is worthy of extra exp, exp, extra exploration as well. We well, you said people are often happy and happiest when they are on very focused quests, essentially. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, use my own language, but very focused times of dedication. I think it's important to note as well, in my opinion, that doesn't mean those periods of focus mean the dismantling of the other institutions of your life. And so you can be all in on, in my case, trying to qualify for Hawaii, for example, but it shouldn't be, and there is not balance there necessarily. It's a, a very focused task, but it shouldn't be at the dismantling of your health or your relationships and everything else. And I think that that's an important distinction because it's it's always a ratio of focus ultimately.
4: Totally. And I think that it's easy to tell yourself a story that you're still maintaining relationships in other areas of life, but in practice, too many people um, kind of let that down as they're pursuing something all in. It, I think it's also, it's very important to to make sure that you're carving out time for just joy. And it's really easy for type A pushers that want to achieve to find meaning, and in, in it's it's a Greek term called eudaimonia, so the kind of happiness that comes from doing some type of hard thing. And maybe they get 99% of their happiness from that and only 1% from just experiencing joy. And I'm young, I'm only 31, but even in my 31 years, I've kind of reversed my thinking on that. I used to be, yup, like meaning, do hard things, that's the path to fulfillment. I still think that's true, but now I shoot for more of like an 80-20 relationship because if you're always just so serious and pushing eventually you're going to get to a point where you're like what's the point of all this like you have to to carve in time to experience joy and that can be through relationships that can be through having a couple beers even though you're trying to hit race weight you know at the end of the day you got to have those times where you can you can sit back and experience joy
0: it's at, it's actually essential for the the uh, the actual point of your focus so let's use an athletic context. If you are driving for something and you are wholly focused, or if you're starting a business and it consumes so much of your, your passion, your dedication, your time, those, those parts of stepping back and removing yourself and creating in your phrase or word joy is a critical element to facilitate acceleration and success in that place of focus. You cannot do it if you are wholly, in fact, it is a part of, I, I have got, I've got got asked the question, what is all in? And all in for something doesn't mean absolute. And that, that that's, a, that's a counterintuitive phrase. But in my mind, all in, if you are all in and you're gonna do it sustainably and you're gonna ultimately be successful, you have to carve out time for yourself, you have to carve out time for others and you have to remove yourself from whatever that pursuit is. Otherwise it's unhealthy obsession.
4: Totally agree.
0: This next in the best of series is really apropos for timing. Just this last week, Jesse Thomas had a career performance at Challenge Rolt. Seven hours and 54 minutes, a 2.44 marathon and a podium finish. It was truly a wonderful performance, all for this time style father and CEO we go deep in our best off in which Jesse talks about the importance of his new phase of his career and how he structures training around work, family, and such a busy life. And the, you know, if if we went back to the start, when we started working with each other was right at the start of your professional career. I mean, you weren't a father at that stage. And, And most of the goals that we talked about it was. I mean, I, I can say this, and in 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 support of you, there, you have always carried that lens. Um, at the same time, the quest, the aspirational quest for you at that time was, was wrapped around triathlon, and it was absolutely it was world class goals. Yeah. That and and you've you've achieved you've achieved a lot. You've uh, you've won a couple of Ironmans. We know about Wildflower Part One of this uh, this two part podcast, and you have that legacy there. But at a certain point there was there was a transition or or a soft point of transition of focus, a phase of transition to focus. Can you point to any particular time where you felt like the, the transition occurred to a more global performance mindset?
5: You know, it's it's funny because I can't really point to a specific time. I think the the business when I started triathlon Picky bars was a side project and I knew I wanted to be a professional triathlete. uh, And I, although I had no idea what that meant, um, but I wanted to be successful and I thought that I could be as a professional triathlete. And then I wanted picky bars to keep doing what it's doing as this cool side project. But I did, but there were no aspirations with picky bars because I didn't even understand what, what the aspirations could be. And then versus now, so if, I, if I'm bookending two two ends of the spectrum, versus now there is this very clear realization of like the impact that picky bars could have on myself, on my family, and on my community, and it's in a lot of ways much more impactful than me even up to doing anything but maybe winning Kona. Right? Um, it would have a bigger impact. The success of that company would have a bigger impact on the communities I care about. And so, and, and so if you look at the two ends of those spectrum, I think it's been a fairly gradual process actually over the last eight years, kind of as I've had success in triathlon, I've experienced that. um, I've aged, but then also as picky bars grows, 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 and and success at picky bars means more and more than it used to. Um, And the only inflection points I would say are everyone's inflection points and that's when you have children
0: yeah
5: and um when i had my son all of a sudden racing wasn't about for the first time ever racing in picky bars wasn't simply about like being the best i could be it was about providing for my family and um making sure that that being the best i could be was in line with making an income and set and, 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 uh, you know, just literally providing for my family basically. And and then, and then even more so with having the second kid, because it's like, it's now, I think the other thing that, that, that has transitioned in that three or four years since having the first to the, to the second is, uh, the need to not only provide for them kind of like financially and resource wise, but also time. And realizing that my, t- the time that I can give to them is the most valuable thing I can give to them now that they're legitimate, you know, children that are interacting with the world. They can interact with me. I can influence them in the, in the heaviest way possible. And that, those two things have been the biggest transition in, in my lens and have made triathlon to a certain extent less important you know, in the global scheme of things because those things have now exist and they didn't exist before.
0: And, and, and bear in mind when you say less important, you've, uh, I think it's important to, to get out here because less important doesn't mean unimportant. I mean, you, no, you, you so. won, you won your two Ironman races with that mindset.
5: hundred percent. And I won, uh, you know, four of the, of those wildflowers or whatever with that mindset, you know, uh, yeah.
0: yeah, exactly. And I I remember a, a question that you you told me that you were asked, where you were you were asked, would you rather be world champions or a world champion or have piggy bars of success? And the answer was piggy bars, and and that's where you sort of that that, that was a point. That was certainly by then that was pretty obvious that we had this we we had this transition. And 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 the reason I'm asking you this question, Jesse, is. I very distinctly, when I lecture about performance and I talk about professional triathletes and I say the quest is unapologetic world-class performance. And so what I mean by that is we suppress many of the other areas of life and they go on a journey for world-class performance. And in some ways that was how you started in the sport. And yet you've successfully made the transition to now what I think about nailing uh, performance globally for the amateur athlete, which is, integration of the sport successfully into life so that it lifts your performance as a in your case as a father and as a ceo you've just managed to do it to this overachievement uh, massive degree where you're also retaining world-class performance and um but but there has been this there's been a coaching transition for me there's been a a mindset transition and and so with that in mind do you think that you're Experience in sport and your training life. Your actual the commitment to continue training and the quest. Do you think that that has held back uh, Picky Bars growth, or do you think it's actually been a, an asset to you in many ways, individually and as for the company?
5: Yeah, I think it's been a mix of both. I think clearly, Picky Bars has benefited from the PR and social media and and the the exposure that um, that. Lauren and I have brought the company as professional athletes we essentially have been unpaid you know very deeply involved brand ambassadors for the company for the entire entirety of the of the company's life and that's definitely valuable in addition to the many lessons you learn just generally about being a high performing athlete and the parallels that come with trying to run a company and, and pushing through problems and overcoming, you know, whatever adversity. Um, but then, but then outside of that, you know, there, like I said, there's been pluses and minuses. I mean, there's definitely been minuses. Like I have, you know, I, when it comes down to it, I can spend depending on the week and the time of year, you know, maybe 40 hours when, when I'm in my complete off season in the office to, five hours tops when I'm in my deepest Ironman training weeks. Um, I'm gone a lot for big races and, um, and I can't and, – and I think more so than anything, I can't take on the level like an increased level of responsibility like bringing on significant investment to picky bars to help fuel the growth, which basically every other company in our industry that's our size has already done. Um, and I, and those things have for sure limited the growth and the success of Piggy Bars.
0: Sure. Uh, yeah. I, I want to hone in on one thing you said, the parallels yeah. of professional triathlon career and building a business. Yeah. Y- you've, you've gone through both and you've gone through them effectively at the same time. Oh yeah. What, 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 are the, what's the headline news, the parallels of the things? I mean, you said problem solving or troubleshooting. What, what are the other areas that you think that you've had where you've, What you've experienced in sport has, has been a sort of parallel to building a business.
5: More than anything, I think it's just like overcoming adversity, you know, and, and believing, having a deep rooted belief and confidence that you can figure it out. Even if the answer is not clear or success is not clear, the path to success is not clear. Um, that ultimately like time trial experience all, if you continue to do those things, you continue to show up, it will eventually work out a lot of times in ways that you don't expect, but it will eventually work out. And that, that's been the primary takeaway that I've had in, in my athletic career. I mean, triathlon is literally a sport I never intended to get into until, I was 28, (laughs) you know, and, and look at what it's look at what it's been now. I always thought I, for a while, I thought I was going to be a professional basketball player when I was like seven. And then I thought I was going to be a, you know, an Olympic distance runner until I was about 23. And now I've been a professional triathlete. I mean, it just, it's just one of those crazy things. And similar with the business, you know, we, I never intended to start an energy bar company and I certainly never intended it to be as successful as it has been. And who knows what it could be down the road. Um, but we've had lots of in all those various experiences. I've had all these major setbacks that I either got through or forced me to pivot into a different direction that led to newer, better, different things that I didn't anticipate. And um, those two, I think, learnings are like the most the, the the biggest parallel you can draw from from the from racing to business.
0: I, I I could have if if I had have not heard the question, I could have come in and thought about the journey of purple patch and, uh, and and drawn the parallels to our own as a company our own non-linear progression and um, and the commitment and the confidence to say we've got to figure this out or i could have heard the thought that you were talking to a young athlete that aspired to be professional it's i mean i, I think it's i think it's a point that's really well taken how about losing everything I mean everything. This is from episode 23, Last Tandra. He lost everything in the Santa Rosa fires and he talks openly about what's important
6: now and how his endurance mindset has actually helped him through this really difficult period. When I was lying in the hospital bed and I had so much time to think, I was really trying to observe the feelings that I had and then trying to not react to them immediately, kind of as a gut reaction. I was really trying to, to you know, observe why I was feeling sad or why I was feeling upset before I reacted to it. So, and really, and really try to separate my reaction to that emotion or to that thought from the actual feeling or the actual emotion.
0: Yeah, not try and run away from the feeling, but... But right. postpone the reaction yeah, yeah exactly yeah, ways, yeah yeah
6: engage with it postpone the reaction and then I slowly started trying to see if I could filter out and and process the negative thoughts and then really really you know engage with the positive thoughts that also started emerging
0: and, and positive, yeah because I, I was my next question was was there a lot of anger
6: uh, but but I think you no. mentioned before no, no. There was gratitude yeah yeah. yeah yeah very very quickly and surprisingly quickly, uh, the, the natural and overwhelming feeling was gratitude. Uh, and that happened, I mean, that happened within the first couple of days. Gratitude for our neighbor calling us. Gratitude for making it out of the fire uh, alive. Gratitude for my wife making it out. Gratitude that my daughter was not at home. That she had gone to college eight weeks uh, prior to this um and and the flip side of the gratitude was also that there were so many things that that could have gotten that could have gone much worse uh, right and especially what i described before that feeling of yeah that feeling of uh, you know being very sure that i'm not going to survive this and then suddenly two days later finding myself in a hospital bed uh, being, being at least relatively safe. That kind of also instilled that feeling of there's so much to be happy about and to be, and to be grateful for.
0: It's um, I, I, I'm not going to belittle this down to to uh, silly humour. It, it's the ultimate detox in a way. It's yes. very strange. Yes, yeah. yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's a, a forced complete redrawing of. Of probably your, your entire life, yes. your perspective on life and yes. everything. It, yes. Despite you obviously being a successful executive, you're, you're living in California as a European. It's the Californian dream. And yes. suddenly you are a proverbial ground zero, yeah? Yes. And um, so, so I want to look forward then yeah. and, and think about some of the, the, the lessons. And I guess that's the question. What were the, the key lessons that you drew from this?
6: I think – I think some of the key lessons were that, uh, again, like I said before, since I cannot influence what happened and I really couldn't influence kind of that, kind of that reset point, right? Where you, where I, you know, woke up in the hospital, all my things are gone. I'm not sure what my life going forward is going to look like. I'm not, I'm not sure if I'll be able to walk in and run again. And I then. I then started looking at it as an opportunity to grow and develop also. Uh, And I thought a little bit about what I had learned from athletics as well, where it is, I really, I really truly believe that it is when we struggle that there's an opportunity to find clarity or to uh, find solutions. And I mean that both from an athletic standpoint, right? The workouts where I've really learned something about myself have not been the workouts where I've just, you know, going yeah, right. exactly. I just go out and I run ten miles and I do it exactly as the coach prescribed, right? Uh, the sessions or the races where I struggled were the were the sessions or the races where I really learned something, mm-hmm. and I really tried to to uh, to use that in this experience too and say there is an opportunity here to grow and develop um, i think another really important lesson is is that i should not take life for granted i got so close to to not surviving this thing that it was very very obvious to me how fragile uh, life is and it's and I think it's something that we all intellectually know, but we forget it from time to time. And uh, and I think this part of you know this part of the experience and having gone through it with my wife, she, my wife is really the only one that I can that I can talk to, who can one hundred percent relate to what I went through. So the bond that that had created that that has created between my wife and my daughter and I uh is, unbreakable. is absolutely
0: yeah absolutely and it, you talked to me uh before the conversation about uh, uh and this is this is after the incident but but talking about uh brad and steve's book, brad steve magnus and, yes. and brad Stolberg, who uh, i've had on the podcast yes. and, and their book uh peak performance and particularly relating to elements of stress and, and yeah. things like that yeah uh coming out to talk to that about sort of reading yeah. that and the uh,
6: how that sparked things, specifically
0: related to your experience.
6: Yeah. 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 Um, when I read the book, a lot of the messages in that book resonated with me on two different levels. A lot of it resonated uh, from kind of the athletic standpoint around, uh, you know, when we struggle, when we are in discomfort um, and, you know, stress can be a uh, uh, you know can be a catalyst for growth and for adaptation and of course i could relate to that just from a purely physical athletic course, standpoint yeah. right and you know stressing my body recovering adapting but i also had a level of appreciation for a lot of that thinking about the experience that i went through and like i was describing before I, my mindset slowly got to a point where i was able to to look at to look at it almost as something valuable where there was stress applied in this case from the outside and not something that that i that i triggered but that level of stress both mentally and physically also served as a catalyst for human growth or for development and and also adapting to this new situation that i suddenly found myself in And
0: finally, nutrition. It was a hot topic for you guys. In fact, this is pulled from two of our episodes, which which were a couple of the most popular. Both are with our resident nutritionist, Kyla Chanel. We talk about hydration and nutrition, really two of our most popular episodes. So dive deep on this pillar of performance as it pertains to both daily life and training. So so, so let's get practical. Um, And with some of the challenges that we talked about, let's uh let's talk about that because you talked about the timing and the and the calories so let's do some basic rules of eating and and i I want you to go back because i i think that that was really important you sort of mentioned i think front-loading calories and Mm -hmm. carbohydrates why don't you talk about that a little bit to practical steps of people that want to actually implement yeah maybe some habit change
7: yeah so like i mentioned you know most Athletes, and not all, of course, but if your trainings are in the morning, you know, that that early morning swim, maybe you come home, have breakfast, and then you maybe go out for another session, strength, whatever it is, um, and those trainings are focused, you know, towards the morning, you can really taper not just your carbs, but also your calories throughout the course of the day. So your larger meals, more calorie-dense meals are... you know, in the morning, and then they're tapering down throughout the course of the day, along with those carbohydrates. So, um, you know, as we get older, we become more sensitive to carbohydrates. Um, and especially so with women, um, as we get older and that also is enhanced in the later afternoon. So, you know, the same hundred grams of potato in the evening is, um, going to have a greater effect than if we had that hundred grams of potato in the morning
0: interesting so uh so it is there's a nice thing and 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 it makes it i mean the message out of it is not just um from you the nutritionist saying hey you get a chance to actually front load and taper both in in carbohydrates and your calories from a coaching lens it's if life allows it and you're doing single sessions a day it's easier to manage that side of it if you can do morning workouts Mm -hmm. yeah And, and i and i really like that if it's I, I'm less of a fan. It's not to say that you're failing if you can only train in the evenings, but but certainly from a very busy time-staffed athlete, if you do get to train in the mornings, I think it sets you up for success. And yeah. look, ultimately, our parents used to say breakfast was the most important meal of the right. day, and they were actually absolutely, absolutely <laughs> right, weren't they? So yeah. um, so that that's great. So so when you think about the three macronutrients, and if, if you if you don't know much about food, although um, well, everyone knows a lot about food because everyone mm-hmm. likes bacon, but um, <laughs> So macronutrients, fat, protein, and carbohydrates. If you, if you did have to sort of make a broad generalization of, of makeup of, mm-hmm. uh, of the hundred percent, how much of them are, are coming from, from yeah. each of those?
7: Yes. Yeah, so once you find your caloric intake, and again, that can vary day to day, but you want to shoot for about 40% of those calories coming from carbohydrates, 30% coming from fats and another 30% coming from protein, roughly speaking, just.
0: Okay. Mm So um, so 40, 30, 30. And then as you mentioned, that doesn't mean that every single meal has exactly the same ratio, but that's the the total uh, caloric side. So what does that mean uh, when you think about Portions yeah. of each. Is there, is there a rule of thumb that we can use? Is there?
7: Yeah. So, like a rough guideline for protein um, intake, I recommend generally in the range of 0.8 to 1.2 grams per pound of body weight. Um, and then, you know, with your carbohydrates, those are going to vary again based on the training, but it can be somewhere in the range of one to three grams per pound per day, um, depending again on that training level. And then fats, probably about half. Um, a gram per pound of body weight so and again that's th- around thirty percent of your total calories
0: okay and, and that's still that's a lot of fat so yeah it's, it's not a low fat diet right right and, um, it's just not a uh, you just don't have to drink olive oil to get right' that. It's the uh, the other side of it so mm-hmm. thats uh, that sugar I, I do want to go back because I you know we, we sort of discussed. Uh, high fat diets a little bit, but let's go to the other side of of sugar, mm-hmm. and uh, and we we will we, we are retaining the nutrition the Matt Dixon purple patch nutrition versus fueling standpoint. So we're going to remove discussion of sugar in performance and training. Outside of it, it's it is an issue in global health for our society at this time
7: right yeah i mean we're like we're eating out a lot like i said we're a lot of my athletes are even eating out of a lot of packaged uh, foods and a lot of people don't realize that there are added sugars you know sugars can be named so many different things maltodextrin sucrose fructose um you know honey agave it, there's all different types that people don't realize maybe to look for on the labels when they're purchasing stuff. And it's not necessary. You can get your carbohydrates, you can get complex carbohydrates from whole real foods. You don't need to get it from, you know, processed sugars.
0: And, and, and carbohydrates are vegetables are carbohydrates yes yeah people don't realize that (laughs)
7: sometimes you know broccoli is carbohydrates (laughs) yeah
0: it's great and you know when we think about sugar the those hidden sugars i think it's you know you're going by my second time in a podcast i'm going to bring up bacon bizarrely Uh, (laughs) it's almost like i had it this morning for breakfast but it's sugar added to bacon oftentimes you most know,
7: of the times yeah to preserve the meat there's sugar added to it so yeah that's a that can be a challenge sometimes
0: it, it's a fair enough for the performance minded though there is literally no place for uh no place i'm i'm i, I don't like people to turn into monks globally mm-hmm. but there is really no place for sugary beverages for coffee and sugaring right. coffee and uh things like that you know General diet.
7: Right. I mean, I think it says a lot if you, you know, you're an athlete and you're on course racing, and Coke is the, that's the opportune time to have Coke, to think that an athlete in that scenario racing at that intensity for that length of time, and that's the right time to have Coke not outside sitting on your couch um you know that's never the right time to
3: have
0: well when you're doing that that is going uh as i would say in english that's going straight to your hips mate right. you know it's uh, it, because it, it will be stored most likely as fat rather yeah. than being stored as usable energy mm-hmm. basically right yeah? at least from a performance side that stored form of glycogen which is great Okay. So, so our game as coaches, nutritionists, athletes is to counter or try and uh, minimize the amount of time during competition that you're operating under three or 4% dehydration. Correct. That's the headline news. Mm-hmm. So that's that's the game. And we're going to get into the how in a second. Um, so, so what would you think are some of the, the mistakes or points of confusion for an athlete, for endurance athletes? You work with such a broad right. range of athletes when they're approaching hydration, What are some of the the biggest points of confusion that you see?
7: I think first off, so many people don't realize that the female and male GI systems are different in their absorption rates and um, the fluid and electrolyte balances that they can utilize are different. I think that's a big one. Um, and that's something that is relatively new and getting out there. But I also, of course, get uh, tons of athletes that come to me and they're just drinking plain water during their training sessions and think that that's hydrating them. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's really not. And you need a little bit of sodium and a little bit of sugar in there to help, uh, co-transport that sodium in through the intestinal wall and it be absorbed. Um, well, then I get people who of course are on the opposite end of the spectrum and drinking things that are way too concentrated, um, or just not drinking at all. And just going out, you know, particularly I find that in when, with runs, like people who, when they go for really long runs, they just won't bring any fluids. Yeah. Um, so those are the common ones.
0: And, you know, you talked about plain water, the subject that I have to bring up, Mm -hmm. uh, hyponatremia, Mm -hmm. Uh, maybe Mm -hmm. explain what hyponatremia is first. Yeah. And, um, uh, because that, that's a hot topic, you know, mm-hmm. on, on the evangelism between drink to thirst and right. and hyponatremia. You yeah. Know, that's, uh, wh- why don't you talk about hyponatremia a little bit?
7: Yeah. So hyponatremia is d- you're essentially if you're drinking plain water while you're training or racing, you're diluting your blood electrolytes. And so your sodium levels are, are dropping off in comparison to the, the volume of water or fluid that's in your blood. So you have low sodium levels per volume of blood. Um, that tends to be more common in women and particularly women in either the high hormone phase or that are, are, have gone through menopause. So it's something to watch out for, for the ladies. Um, But yeah, that, that can absolutely happen. And if you get to that point while you're racing, it's, it's kind of, you're not going to fix that during the race. You're probably potentially ending up in the med tent, if
0: you will. And you know, I'll remember, I remember a story a few years ago now, uh, and our English listeners will probably enjoy this very brief story but uh, it it can be very dangerous you know it's this laughing but many, many people went to hospital and in fact, I think right. there was even one a person that passed away from hyponatremia mm-hmm. in just a half marathon in Newcastle a few years ago yeah. uh, because it was extremely hot relative to local temperatures. It was a whole sixty five mm. degrees and partly cloudy <laughs> um, and uh you know we shouldn't be shouldn't we laughing about right. the, uh chat, but uh but it's a, a very northern English thing, and uh, and they piled on recommendations of drink, 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 and mm-hmm. people took it very, very seriously, and ended up yeah. in the med tent. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, uh, and that that can really happen. Uh, so. On the flip side of of sort of the hyponatremia, best intentions, recommendations by coaches, drink, 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 but mm-hmm. people just drinking, hyponatremia occurs when you're consuming pure water, right. basically, because you're adding to the dilution of your natural exactly, electrolyte balance. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, on the flip side, then there's uh, research, there's um, interesting research around drink to thirst, and there are evangelists that say, no matter what, mm-hmm. we have an evolutionary mechanism uh, that tells us that we should just dr- that that we are signaled when we are mm-hmm. becoming dehydrated. We should just listen to that right. Whats your standing on that
7: that becomes a little bit tricky again when you are um either a postmenopausal woman or a woman in a high hormone phase where your thirst sensation is dampened so, you can't utilize the drink to thirst rule in that type of scenario. You know, using a cue or a timer and kind of reminding yourself when to sip and drink is going to be really important if you're in that category.
0: Okay. And what about people? like me, I'm not, uh, mm-hmm. I'm not, men- I don't think I'm menopausal, but, um, <laughs> uh, you know, is, is there a rule of thumb for me? Cause I can go out and run for 45 minutes yeah. and I don't need to have a hydration strategy right. for that. Do yeah.
7: I? I mean, if anything, you could use some plain water and anything really under 60 minutes, plain water is really fine. Um, you know, I would assume you're getting electrolytes obviously throughout the course of your day from your foods and if you're salting any of your meals and things like that. So I think you'd be totally fine in 60 minutes or less with just plain water.
0: Okay. And then, you know, when when would you say there's a, is there a tipping point or a number, a rule of thumb knowing that over a certain number of minutes or hours that you need to have a dedicated hydration strategy? Yeah.
7: I mean, I would say over like things going over 60, 90 minutes, you know, using a hydration product, um, for those types of trainings is going to be helpful in terms of your training performance for sure.
0: Okay. Yeah. That's a great way to say it. it's yeah. helpful for your training <laughs> performance. So yeah, you're, you're, you're not going to go end up in the med tent, but if right. you want to optimize your performance, it's useful to use a hydration product.
7: Exactly. Yeah. And,
0: and they, when you talk about hydration product, the ABCs of it are uh, uh, some electrolytes in there, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of uh, sugar in there mm-hmm. essentially mm-hmm. and the reason for that is not to get calories yeah
7: right yeah so you want your hydration to be separate from your fueling so you're not trying to get your fuel from your hydration product
0: the the, the electrolytes in there and the 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 calories that are in there you don't even count them towards sort of a refueling strategy
7: i would not count them no
0: you just the the simple reason (laughs) is to help draw it across and and absorb and actually Mm -hmm. hydrate you at the cellular level yeah yeah?
7: so a little bit of sugar is required as kind of a a little, uh, a co-transporter for sodium to help pull it across the intestinal barrier. So we can get a little bit of sugars in there to help kind of pair up with that sodium pulled across the barrier. that would be a more effective way to get that sodium into your system to help keep that blood plasma volume up.
0: Okay. Let's talk about hydration goals a little bit, because mm-hmm. th- this is something that I find many athletes don't understand. Uh, they, um, they take the lens of a camel walking through the desert, mm-hmm. storing as much fluid as they possibly can. But When you're exercising, while hydration is important, you've established that Mm -hmm. it's not a goal to retain full hydration status.
7: Right, right, yeah. I mean, there's no doubt that you're gonna come out on the other end of the race with some level of fluid loss. Um, You want to minimize those losses the best you can. If you were to try and completely um, come out, you know, with 0% uh, fluid loss, you'd, you'd probably be loading up your GI system with so much fluids that it would end up causing GI distress and you might not finish the race at all. Right. So, um, yeah, coming out with a little bit of fluid loss or, or percent dehydration is okay, but we want to minimize that. And again, um, you know, minimize being in that three to 4% dehydrated state.
0: And that, that becomes we'll get into this a little bit later, but it becomes more and more important or more of a thing to be managed the mm-hmm. longer the event or the training session becomes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're 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 trying you're, to minimize it over many, many hours right. sometimes. You're yeah?
7: sweating for a longer period of time.
0: That that makes sense. And then coming back to electrolytes before we dive into our case studies, mm-hmm. because it's such a such a an important role and people with the emergence of, of the sports nutrition companies, electrolytes have uh, have sort of bubbled up into people's psyche in many ways. So mm-hmm. explain what they are first and what their role is.
7: Yeah. So our main electrolytes and the common ones you're going to see in hydration products are definitely going to be your sodium, potassium, maybe a little magnesium. And then we also have calcium and uh, the chloride ion as well. And the role of electrolytes in our body is really to maintain our fluid balance. But things like uh, magnesium and calcium are also key components in muscular contraction too. So sure. um, that's obviously something that's important. And then nerve impulse signaling is going to utilize some of those electrolytes as well in our body. So there's lots of key factors for the electrolytes.
0: And, and it's not a case of more is better. It's it's a balance right. equation. Yeah, yeah. That, that's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, you, you can't just pile on and expect normal function.
7: Right, yeah, you can't, yeah. You don't want to top out and something like uh, magnesium calcium ratios, if those get out of whack, for example, you have more or less than the other that that can cause muscle spasming or cramping as well. So you want to have you know a proper ratio of those in your system.
0: Well, yeah. So can can you address the the topic of electrolytes and cramps? Because I think <laughs> the only reason that people think they're taking electrolytes is to stave off cramps, and that yeah. that comes to them becoming foie gras geese with right. electrolyte pills. Yeah. So uh, I mean, the research is shaky, and uh, there, there no research around. Right. Uh, electrolytes there's, preventing cramps yeah
7: yeah there's no we haven't found the exact reasoning behind muscle cramps um we there's a lot of studies out there of course and the main culprit for the longest time was that um you know so, you know sodium levels were, were the reasoning or um dehydration was the reasoning and then athletes are going to pop a salt tablet or a salt pill and that can end up exasperating the issues sure. um so we we know that there's some relation in terms of plasma volume dropping in muscle cramping, but we still don't have that full, um, There's not the study out yet that has that exact like reasoning for us yet. So we're waiting on
0: that one. And my take from a coaching lens, I mean, that there's also some interesting studies or at least uh, investigations used mm-hmm. to say around, you know, is it potentially neural as well? And it right. a component of that and mm-hmm. It's one of those things. How do you? What's the cause of an injury? Mm-hmm. And and it's seldom one cause that creates an injury. Yeah. Right. It could be changing running surface. It could be shifting form. It could be old shoes. It could be just overall totally. stress and fatigue. It seems to me like it could. There are contributing factors of what causes a spasm or cramp. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. probably not just one right. flag every single time, and we don't understand yeah. uh, yet what it is. So what that leads to, though, is and And one thing I should mention as well is straight dehydration doesn't necessarily mean cramps,
7: right, exactly. yeah, I think every athlete is really unique in really when they're cramping and their muscles are potentially spasming and trying to dial in like when is that cramp going on um you know where if it's a female, where are you in your hormone cycle, how is your hydration? like all of those factors need to be taken into consideration when trying to kind of nail down what's causing that cramp for that individual
0: so do athletes always need exogenous electrolytes in their training and racing?
7: I would say no. And not under, I mean, anything under 60 minutes there, like I said, um, there's no need for electrolytes during something like that. And again, like on the, the salt tablet issue, if you have your normal hydration product that you're using and is mixed properly for you, you don't need to add in any additional salt tablets or things like that to your current electrolyte intake you so, so, sh- shouldn't need to <laughs> so it
0: should just come through our fluids and then some the calories that you're going to consume will obviously have some electrolytes in right. it as well won't they people mm-hmm. people don't realize that right you know, if yeah. you're consuming chews or blocks the, right you know etc but so is there a rule of thumb of uh, how many electrolytes should be consumed
7: so i think finding again that proper ratio for if you can gender specific would be great but um you do want Specifically with the carbohydrates, you want something that's around a 3 to 4% concentration of, of carbohydrate in your solution. So that means um, 7 to 9 grams of carbohydrates per 8 ounces of fluid. So check your labels for that one. Um, and can you, want, can you
0: just restate that again? Yeah. How, how, many, how many grams per? 7 to
7: 9 grams okay. of a carbohydrate.
0: Per how many ounces?
7: Per 8 ounces. Per and 8 ideally... 8 ounces. Okay coming from a glucose sucrose sugar sources as opposed to fructose or maltodextrin okay um would be ideal for, for that. your hydration mm-hmm. fluid. okay
0: and, and and then how much uh, for sodium, sodium
7: you, you can shoot in a range for 180 to 225 we um, can vary slightly you know plus or minus a little bit above that and below it depending on the environment um, that you're racing in and then some potassium somewhere in the range of 60 to 75 milligrams in that same solution so in that eight ounces
0: per, per eight ounces mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay that's so if you've got a 20 ounce water bottle you're you're getting close to right that by three mm-hmm. yep yeah perfect well thanks so much and firstly a personal message thanks so much for joining us on this journey in the podcast with purple patch so far so what now Well, actually, I think it's really valuable for you to go back and listen to those episodes in their entirety. Head back, keep the learning going. They're so packed with information. And in fact, purplepatchfitness.com forward slash nutrition is still alive if you want to get in there and complete some of the cheat sheets. Coming up, we've got a lot more fun. We're going to talk about the value of training camps and how to manage big blocks of training. We're also going to discuss confidence with Professor Andy Lane out of Wales and how you can coach confidence in people but also cross over into business and life. And there's so much more coming. Stay tuned. We're going to be back with the regular episode next week. But until then, enjoy the best of and
3: take care. Cheers.